Well, it's the first, uh, the second day of summer. Trust all of you enjoyed the entrance of summer yesterday. 70 degree weather. A prophecy of the rest of summer. <clears throat> Probably not. And uh, I understand that the Washington Nationals are still in first place. Yes. And uh, I, I observe Hector reminded me the fact that uh, Russia and Belgium do not begin their soccer game until 12 o'clock. So there should be no shouts in this audience of goals scored or things like that, at least until the application of the message at 12.15. I notice it is 11.26. How often has a preacher begun his sermon at 11.26 on a Sunday morning? This is probably almost a record, and I think Pastor Van's going to have to know that I got on before he has ever gotten on. And it's good because I have a long message. I normally identify my sermons by how many pages I have, you know. Usually a sermon needs to be about six pages because six pages is 30 minutes, 35 minutes, something like that. (laughs) This one is 10 pages. All right? Amen? I heard an amen. Praise the Lord, yeah. It's great to be here. I enjoy the privilege of uh, explaining God's Word, of being with you. Two weeks ago, we talked about uh, grace, and we talked about the fact that grace has to be something that comes free. It cannot be purchased, it cannot be deserved, it cannot be required. It is a free gift, an absolutely free gift that God gives. And I trust every one of you has received the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about lessons from the prodigal's father, the prodigal's gracious father. And we talked about the fact that how the father was actively engaged in the life of his sons. He was patiently engaged in the life of his sons. And he flagged. An event, an experience in the life of one of his sons that was so important. Flagged it to the place of giving him a robe and a ring and sandals and grilling up the fat calf. Today I want to talk about how do we grow? How do we grow in grace? The picture is the prodigal son the next day after he got home. Okay? He gets home, he gets a ring, he gets a robe, he gets sandals, and they, they eat steaks. All right, what happened the next day? What do you do after you have received grace? You know, if the father has given him a robe, if the father has given him a ring, which means the credit card, doesn't that sound dangerous? I mean, this kid could repeat what he did before. Grace is dangerous, and it's easier sometimes just once a person comes to Christ, once a person experiences grace, to just put them under the law and say, okay, you need to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, you know, get busy. So what does it mean to live under grace? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, new things. What does it mean to be a new creation? I think so often we do not understand what it means to live under grace, to grow in grace. We have this verse, 2 Peter 3.18, that says, but grow in grace. And the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which suggests that our lives ought to be like a farm. We plant seeds. We grow. Okay? It's not a commercial farm. We don't sell. We grow. So what is it like? That's that's what I'm attempting to do today in ten pages. Okay? That was supposed to be encouraging. And my passage today is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. 
Let me start with this analogy. I think we need an analogy of what it's based on, of what it means to grow in grace. Three weeks ago, I had a rather unusual wedding down in Virginia where I married two, two people and uh, the, the wedding, the marriage was arranged. Okay? The man came from India, was living in Pennsylvania. The woman's parents were Indian, came from India, and she lived in California. And this couple had met each other five times. He flew out five times to California and they talked. Okay? The parents arranged the wedding, arranged the marriage. Can you imagine what that would be like? I married this couple who, as they stood before me, looked more surprised than, or more worried than most couples do. And uh, I, I got the opportunity to counsel them the day before for a short time, way too short a time. So I said to the uh, wife-to-be, without the husband-to-be there, I talked to her earlier and I said, so what's he like? And uh, she didn't know very much, too much. I said, so what makes him cry? She said, I don't know. What makes him laugh? I don't know. So here they are. They got married three weeks ago. They went to Hawaii for two weeks. They came back last Monday and they motored up to Pennsylvania where he owns a house, fully furnished house, and works at an engine plant. So what do they do? What do you do? Well, he goes to work, right? Comes home. She does the wifey thing. Right? Does he have to does he have to buy her anything? No. No, it's all over already. He's got the woman. She's got the man. What do you do? That's the issue on growing in grace. What do you do? So I said to them, You've got these responsibilities that are going to make or break your marriage. Number one, you've got to get to know each other, okay? That's rather obvious. Number two, you need to get to know what your position is in this marriage. You've got a new title in this marriage. You've got a new role in this marriage. What is your role? Number three, you've got to get to know how do I serve, and how do we serve together? How do we do this thing together? You've got to build your lives together. And number four, you're going to do all of this is you talk. You need to talk. So I said to them, you need to talk 500 hours this first year. Calculate it. 500 hours, 365 days. You're talking about an hour and a half a day at least. You need to talk. Now, I think that that's a picture of the Christian life. That's a picture of growing in grace. And I think that comes out in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. See if you can see these four categories as I read. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is, we're beginning in verse 1. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let me start off by saying, where does the 500 hours come from in here? I don't see the word 500. It's in verse 2. Verse 2 is saying, we grow in grace as we drink irresponsibly. Drink irresponsibly. Do you see it in verse 2? Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. The command is in the word long, long. It's the word desire. Then the picture is of a newborn infant who is sucking and slurping and choking and can't get enough of that stuff in him or her. That's the way we should be responding to this word as newborn infants. So we should drink like newborn infants. Babies are born with this sucking reflex that enables them to process milk the minute they're born. In fact, if a baby doesn't start sucking quickly, you wonder what's wrong with it. Peter suggests that every Christian is born with that same reflex toward God's word. Can you remember the day when you couldn't get enough of this book? That's an indication that Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are in your life. You can't get enough of the book. This is the milk. This is the life. The World Health Organization, American Academy of Pediatrics, emphasized that breast milk is the best thing for a baby and that that's all a baby needs for the first six months. That's all a baby needs. It has the right mix of everything. The purpose is very similar here. This is what you need. This has the mix of what you need. So the Bible is the source of our growth in grace. Here's the source. What do you need to grow in grace? Well, you need some promises from God. God has said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He said, cast your care on me. I care for you. He said, come boldly before the throne of grace that you might receive mercy and grace to help. It's these promises. It's these, it's these statements. It's these introductions that God makes of himself that supply grace. And we need those every day. Amen? That's pretty quiet. Morning service, the earlier service was very quiet this morning. I don't know what happened last night, but it was very quiet this morning. And what happens is that we often use substitutes for the Word of God. You know, we can listen to Christian music that has good words, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. We can have Christian fellowship with other believers, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. We can get a Bible that explains everything, you know. You get a Bible with the notes, and you read the notes, and you, and you learn a lot from the notes. And that's excellent. That's good. But a baby can have fellowship. A baby can have all these other kinds of things and yet starve without milk. It needs milk. The same thing is true with you and me. We need this book. As newborn infants long for the milk of the word. You'll find that a Christian with a healthy appetite for this word will grow. Will grow by leaps and bounds. So, here's my question. If a three-week-old baby craved milk the way you crave God's word, would they survive? If a three-week-old baby craved milk 
the way you crave God's word, will they survive? We need this book. So my question is, do you have milk? You got milk? Even more, do you, you got milk? And here's a picture I love. A baby with milk. That's the way we ought to be. So that's number one. We grow in grace as we get into the Word of God. Number two, we grow in grace as we meet our new bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We grow in grace as we meet our new bridegroom, Jesus Christ. I want to read verses 2, 4, and 6, and I want you to notice the combination here. The progression of 2, 4, and 6. Verse 2 says, uh, As newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see the trail? Long for this word, come to him, believe in him, you will not be put to shame. In other words, as you get into this book, you come to him. As you come to him, you believe in him. And the result of that is joy and peace and excitement. You will not be put to shame. There's the process. You come to this word, you come to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is explained and diagrammed and pictured and emphasized in this word. So notice the kind of things that Peter talks about when he talks about Christ. He identifies our bridegroom as the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Verse 4 says we come to a living stone. Verse 6 quotes from Isaiah 28 and says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Cornerstone. What do you think of when you think of a cornerstone? You think of a red brick? A brick at the corner? Cornerstones are the foundational stones that set the direction of the building and that fasten the building. In uh, Herod's temple, back in the early days, they had cornerstones that weighed 50 tons, were 33 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 3 feet high. So when you think of a cornerstone, you want to think of something like Beachy Head here, or like El Capitan, the next photo, you're thinking about a massive rock that is the foundation of a person's life, that sets the direction of a life. Jesus Christ is the foundation of what God is doing on earth today. He is the foundation of the church. He is the one who sets the direction, the one who establishes what is happening. He is the cornerstone. Then it says he is the rejected one. Do you see that in verse 4? Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed, some translations put in correctly, indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You ever thought of Jesus Christ as a reject? Rejected. There was a construction job. The contractors ignored the blueprints, threw out the foundation boulder, tried to build their own version of a temple for God. These were the leaders in Israel, the Pharisees, scribes, the Sanhedrin, who watched Jesus when he came, they talked to him, they saw his miracles, and then they made a choice and they said, he is not what we want. And they hung him on a cross. This, after he had lived a perfect life, blessed their country with miracle after miracle, Eliminated the power of Satan in the country, 
spoken words of truth. They saw God himself in the flesh operating under full control of the Holy Spirit and still stamped reject on him. They rejected the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. It's absolutely incredible that the designated hitters in Israel, the big men who had the responsibility, should make such poor choices. And yet, you find that people still do the same thing today. Have you ever felt on the spot for aligning yourself with Jesus? Knowing that people reject Jesus? You know? Oh, you believe in him? Do you have other mental issues? Do you handle snakes? What do you do in those situations where you know that the attitude of the people toward Christ is going to be, is going to be aimed at you? Do you become a little bit more neutral? A little less committed? A little broad, more broad-minded? I've done that. It's a big temptation, you know? Sometimes you don't want to be rejected with the rejected one. But he was rejected, and we have the privilege of being rejected with him. It's not only who your friends are, it's who your enemies are. That's important. So he's the cornerstone. He's the rejected one. And then let me emphasize verses 4 and 6 and 7, where it says God's opinion is that he's the precious one. Verse 4, chosen by God and precious. Verse 6, elect, precious. Verse 7, some translations use the word precious. You've got it at least two times in this passage, possibly three. Precious means valuable, highly esteemed, cherished, beloved. He is the blessing of the world. Is Jesus Christ that in your life? Is he highly esteemed? Valuable, precious, cherished. I would imagine that's part of the reason why you're here. You know? I find that my attitude toward Jesus Christ is greatly affected by my presence in this book. You know? As I'm in this book, my attitude toward Jesus Christ changes. Chuck Swindoll was 10 or 11 years old, had never seen a football game, either in high school or college or professional game. He grew up in East Houston, Texas, and played plenty of sandlot football, asphalt pavement football, but they didn't own a TV, and he had never seen a real football game. One weekend, he went to visit friends in Austin, Texas, And the father of the family asked if the kids wanted to go to a game with the University of of Texas. Swindoll was not even sure what he was asking. But he was interested because he'd played, you know, football. So football game, University of Texas, he thought, you know, might be fun. He, He reports this, I'm quoting. As we walked up the ramp at the stadium, my eyes must have been like the size of saucers. And when we stepped into the bleachers, I literally could not believe the scene that stretched before me. Warming up down on the field stood Bobby Lane, who later that day went on to lead the Longhorns to a one-sided victory. The immediate outcome was great. Winning is always fun. But the ultimate change in my life was enormous. In one brief afternoon, my world exploded. I had had the taste of the excitement, the color, the competition of big-time football. And I would never be the same. Swindoll concludes, trust me, once you have tasted the big-time freedom that grace provides, you will never again be satisfied with sandlot living. And I really mean 
Never. Can you imagine that you have been invited to life with the most powerful, precious person in the universe? Life with the wisest person in the universe. Life with the creative genius, designer of the universe. That's heady stuff. That's grace. This is the joy and the thrill of the new, the new bride or the new bridegroom when they realize that they have married the prized possession. You know, they've struck the jackpot. They've won the marriage lottery. What's it like to be connected with the most awesome person in the world? We should never really want to go back to Sandlot living after being with him. So here's the project. How do you grow in grace? You grow in grace by coming to know Jesus Christ. You want to come to know the bridegroom. He is the cornerstone of our lives. He is the rejected one. He is the precious one. Do you know him? I'm sure you know about him. Do you know him? You have to simply sit down and talk to him. You need to listen to his word. That's how we come to know him. Number three. We grow in grace as we understand who we are. We grow in grace as we drink irresponsibly, as we meet our new bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Number three, we grow in grace as we understand who we are. Once you get into a new relationship and a new situation, you have new titles, you have new entitlements, you have new responsibilities. Look at how Peter describes it here. I'm reading verse 5 and then 9 and 10. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There are actually nine statements here describing our new identity in Christ. He says living stones, spiritual house, holy priesthood, that's verse 5, Chosen generation, royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, verse 9. The people of God, the ones who now have obtained mercy, in verse 10. Do you feel alive? Do you feel spiritual? Do you feel holy with all those titles? The funny thing to me is that I feel none of these. (laughs) You know? And apart from the Bible, I doubt I would come up with these designations for myself. I don't really feel like a living stone, a spiritual house. I don't feel like God's special people. I wouldn't get any of these suggestions from the Washington Post. My children wouldn't encourage me in any of these. The neighbors wouldn't. They might think I'm a stone of stumbling. So where do you get this information? You only get it one place. You get it as you drink irresponsibly. You drink in God's word. Understanding these designations is important because they all involve entitlements as well as responsibilities. God wants us to act on the basis of who he says we are. Who he says we are, not how we feel. So let me mention a couple of these. There are nine of them. I don't really feel 
like I have that much time. <clears throat> but let me mention three of them. Number one, we're living rocks. We are living rocks. Do you see that in verse 5? You also, as living stones, are being built. The picture is that God is building a temple. God is building a place on earth because he wants to live on earth. He wants to be with his people and in his people. And God is putting rocks together, living rocks together, in combinations so that they can live together and enjoy his presence together. So he finds that somebody over here has the talent and ability that fits somebody over here, and he puts them together, and somebody here fits somebody there, and he's fitting these rocks together. Because as they live together, he can dwell in their presence. God wants to be in our presence as we gather to worship him. So we are living, we are a part of his temple. A part of the place where he dwells. Then it says we're priests. Priests, verse 5. What's a priest? That sounds a little stilted, you know. Sounds like you should walk slowly. Hold your hands the right way, those kind of things, you know. Wear the right outfit. What is a priest? A priest is a person that has access to rooms that other people can't access. You know? And as priests, we have been given the unbelievable privilege of entering the room, the room, headquarters for the universe, the very presence, the throne room of God himself. We've been given a pass into the room. We've been given a season pass into the room. Eternal season pass into the room. Think of what that means. It means that I can change all kinds of things. I can change things in China. I can change decisions that are made in the throne rooms of the countries of the world. I can change things in my neighbors' lives. I can change things in my family, hard things, impossible things. Why? Because I am a priest. I have a season pass to the room. And the invitation is, come boldly and ask for mercy and grace for the time of need. And it will be granted because I have the pass. You have the pass. We are priests. One of the amazing things is how rarely we use the pass, you know? It's possible that people don't use their pass at all because they don't think it's that valuable. They don't think that much is happening up there. Or they don't think they can influence what's happening by their requests. But a priest is a person who has access and if you know Jesus Christ, you have it. You've got the pass. Verse 9 says believers are a people. A people. What is a people? It's a word that means the clan, the natives, the folks. You know, we folks, we've been here for 119 years. We all have the same shaped nose. We all act the same way. We all got the same, you know, characteristics. Clan. Clan means you belong. You just drive up to the house and open the refrigerator door and take what you want because you belong. 
You enjoy that? Do you like that? You know, one of the things I enjoy about being connected with my kids is that they like to hang out together. So when we built a house, when Tom built us a house, he built us a house. It was a little larger than you would think for a retirement house. Last night, we had 24 people sleeping at our house. We borrowed blow-up mattresses and so on. You know what we ran out of? Towels. <laughs> this morning, I could not find a towel. And I don't know who got sleep. I'm looking for our client as to whether anybody showed up today of the 24 people. Anybody show up? I don't think my wife even came. <laughs> they, they all assured me they wouldn't show up at 8.30. So I knew they weren't going to be here at 8.30, but I thought we would get some of them at 11. Well, some clans are better than others. <laughs> I will see if I can convict them when I get home today. But they all gathered because we've got a granddaughter who's having her fourth birthday today, and she's been living with her parents for a year now in Kenya, in Nairobi, and they're back for four weeks. They're actually going back next week. And uh, so the clan has come. We had four that came from Virginia and six that came from Kentucky and several from other places and it was great. It was awesome. The point here is that we are the clan. We are God's clan. He probably has more than 24 on any particular evening. And we are part of that clan. So I had a picture there of clan. Where's the clan picture? Yeah, there we are. The clan. Tragically, there are believers in Jesus Christ who have received this gift of grace, who have, no, no, who have no joy in realizing they're part of the group. God has made them part of the group. Jay Adams makes this comment. They're simply adrift, alone, on society's boundless sea. This is why we have reunions in our clan. It's why we meet Sunday mornings. It's a reunion, you know, Wednesday nights, getting together. This is why elders seek excuses for this clan to get together, so we can fellowship, so we can talk. Number four, we grow in grace as we interact with our bridegroom, with our Lord. Grow in grace as we drink irresponsibly, as we meet our new bridegroom, Jesus Christ, as we understand who we are, and number four, as we interact with our Lord. So you get a couple who has become married. How do they grow together? They grow together as they go through life's experiences. You know, they run out of money. Now what do you do? You do it together. Child becomes sick. They're in the emergency room, you know, like the Wesleys, time and time again. What do you do? You do it together. You grow together through life's experiences. This is what was happening with the prodigal son. What did the prodigal son do the day after he was received home? He gets introduced to his father because he's going to run the farm with his father. He never knew his father. He lived at home and never met his father. He didn't know his father was that gracious. He didn't know his father responded that way. Now he's got to come to meet him because he's going to run the farm with his father. The same thing is true with a Christian. Jesus Christ wants us to come to know him and understand him because he wants us to take the yoke and learn of him and find out that his yoke is a whole lot easier than we thought it was going to be. Because there's somebody on the other side of the yoke who has all knowledge, all wisdom, all powerful. It's my yoke, he said. You take my yoke and you'll find out something strange. My yoke is easy. Have you come to the word easy yet? I haven't either. Easy. My burden is light because Jesus Christ is in it. 
So that's the process. The process is that we grow in grace as we interact with our Lord, as we come to understand our Lord. And what kind of interaction do you have here? Well, verse 3 says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. The word is, if is not there. It's a, it's the state, a statement of fact. Since you've tasted that the Lord is good. This is what God wants us to do. You know, if, you're, if you get saved and you get put under the law, the law says you go be good. Grace says, taste my goodness. Yes, I'm interested in you being good, but I'm interested in you starting by tasting my goodness and understanding who I am. Then it says, we offer up spiritual sacrifices. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. What does it mean, offer up spiritual sacrifices? Well, spiritual is talking about that unseen something that turns a house into a home. What's the difference between a house and a home? You can't really see it. You can't even define it. You got the same thing with prayer. You know, what is it that makes prayer, prayer? Jesus in Matthew 6 described the prayer of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were praying. Matthew 23, he says they can pray for a long time. And they can get out their prayer mat and they can pray in public. And, and they do a lot of praying. But Jesus said their praying wasn't doing anything because the hidden side, the spiritual side, they were doing it to be seen of people. And therefore, they were not contacting God. They might as well have been praying to telephone poles. We offer up spiritual sacrifices. In other words, it's not just what you do. It's that you do something, but it's not just what you do. It's why you do it. So you came to church. That's a good move. You should be commended for coming to church. Why did you come to church? Maybe you come to church because you didn't have anything else to do. I doubt that. Maybe you came to church because you had to. Maybe you came to church because it's been a habit for 37 years in your life. Maybe you came to church to show people your new clothes. Maybe you came to church just because you like to be around these people. See, a spiritual sacrifice says to the Lord, I am here today, Lord, to worship you. I am here today to meet you. I'm going to enjoy the people, I'm going to enjoy everything else, but I'm here today to worship and meet you. I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. You see, that's the hidden side. That's the spiritual side. And you find all through Scripture these statements that say, here's what God is looking for. He's looking for a sacrifice that comes from the heart. He's looking for a heart that loves him. It seems to me that was the, the statement of David, a man after my own heart. So he's taught, Peter is saying, here's, here's how we interact. We interact by offering up spiritual sacrifices. We interact by, by coming to church with an attitude that pleases God, an attitude that says, I want you. And then one more. This is verse 9. It says, we, that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love this passage, this phrase. I think it's a perfect description of life and ministry of a Christian. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
The word of excellency says there's something special here. This isn't just good stuff. This isn't just really good stuff. Excellencies. You find when people talk that people normally talk about what's in their excellent category. Okay? So it may be a car, you know, something that is just excellent. It may be a house. It may be a talent they have. It may be some other kind of thing. It may be what happened to the nationals. But they're talking about excellent things. Here, God is interested that his people talk about the excellencies of Jesus Christ, the excellencies of our bridegroom. You talk about these things as you come to know them, as you meet him, and you realize what he was like yesterday when he solved that issue, when he changed that heart, when he encouraged you at that moment. Excellencies. And then it says, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Marvelous. Light, yes. Marvelous light. So what's happening? What you have are people who have been so changed by this new bridegroom that they can't talk about anything else. They want to talk about the light. They want to talk about the excellencies. They want to talk about just, you know, how outstanding, awesome this person is. You ever been there? You ever done that? You enjoy that? God wants you to grow in grace. That's what happens. You grow in grace. You come to understand the excellencies and the marvelous light. So let me end with three suggestions, five suggestions. I have five suggestions. Number one. Set up a regular reading schedule, prayer schedule, just a time where you talk and listen. You talk to God, you listen to his word. You need to set up a regular time like you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You just do it. I would encourage you right now to decide a time. It can be every morning when you start. It can be every night when you stop. It can be every other day. It can be once a week. I once had a schedule where I had very little time in the morning or in the evening. This was back when we had kids running all over the place. And I spent Saturday morning, I took off Saturday morning, spent three, sometimes four hours Saturday morning with nothing more than just to spend time with the Lord. And I got to the place where almost... All week long, I couldn't wait for Saturday morning, you know? Just the privilege of being with God Saturday morning. So it doesn't, it really doesn't matter exactly how you do it. The, the, the important thing is that you do it. And what you have to do is you have to get a habit. You have to get into a habit of doing this. If you say, well, I'll do it when I feel like it, you'll never feel like it much, you know? It has to be a habit. And it has to be like breakfast, lunch, and dinner where you don't say after you eat lunch, okay, did I profit from that? What was the benefit of that lunch? You don't ask those questions. You just eat. Same thing is true with Scripture. You know, you just eat. Drink irresponsibly. Just drink it. So number two says... Start with an easy goal. Don't look, don't read 99 chapters, you know. Just start with an, one verse of Scripture to chew on every day is better than no verses of Scripture. You want a habit where you get into God's Word. Number three says, begin each time by asking God to give you, open, to give you an open heart and open eyes. Psalm 119.18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Pray, ask God for wisdom. Four, read to your children, read to your grandchildren, read to neighborhood children, read to children who are stragglers, read, read to somebody else. 
So great for children to hear scripture read. And number four, number five says, realize the fact. There is a number five. There it is. I have to read it because I don't have it in my notes. Notice that no one, no one can make you do this. This is grace. Grace says God wants to give you. And if you say, I'm sorry, I just am not that interested and I'm too busy. No one can force it on you. So it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to say, I want to live in grace. I want to grow in grace. I want to meet the bridegroom. I want to see the bridegroom in my life and experience life with him. Have you done that? Have you said, by God's grace, I am going to live with this bridegroom? I would challenge you today. Set a time. I'm going to get into this word. I'm going to spend time with God. May he bless you. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to have in our hands your word. We are so blessed. You have been so gracious. Would you, Lord, strengthen each one of us? Would you enable each one of us to nail down in a schedule, a time, a place when we, that we will set aside for you? And I just pray that out of this congregation, out of these people, you will raise up by your grace people who will walk with you. Thank you for the privilege and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.